I'll introduce myself. I am Edward McQuinney. I am uh, a sometime professor of international law, sometime advisor to the United Nations, and uh, sometime member of parliament, parliamentary secretary for foreign affairs in Canada. But uh, mostly I uh, am an author and I give opinions, and, uh, which uh, sometimes followed. And sometimes, of course, uh, perhaps not. But there we are. We're approaching one of the interesting uh, topics of our times. It was an interesting subject historically. Uh, the concept of accommodation peacefully of opposing political systems and uh, in the 21st century uh, colliding civilizations. Is it possible for people with radically different systems to work together, to cooperate harmoniously, ideally, but at least cooperate without going to war, without threatening to go to war. And that brings us to a subject that was very much the subject of the day half a century ago, the concept of peaceful coexistence. It's a nice phrase, but it has a juridical basis too. Uh, 50, just ha more than half a century ago, two great countries with um, distinctive cultures and distinct and different legal systems got together to resolve a long festering dispute between them. I speak now of the uh, People's Republic of China and India. For, at that time, for more than half a century, China and India had been bitterly opposed to each other over a frontier dispute in the Himalaya regions. It was inherited by the new independent sovereign republic of India from the British Raj. Uh, the frontier dispute with China had been a dispute between British India and Imperial China, the old dynasty uh, uh, era. And um, Zhou Enlai and Jawaharlal Nehru got together and said, look, we each have distinct problems. Our problem in India is we're newly independent. We have massive gap in terms of wealth and social opportunity amongst our people. We're also a multicultural society. We don't want to be distracted by external forces. And uh, the People's Republic, for its own part, said we're not a member of the United Nations. We're excluded from the United Nations. We don't participate in what we would call the organized legal, legal world community. And um, we should not get distracted either by uh, unnecessary disputes, the frontier dispute. We will resolve on principles of peaceful relations between ourselves. And it made sense um, because uh, China would wait till 1971 to be admitted to the United Nations, to be recognized generally by other members of the world community. India on independence was faced with the problem of the fissure of the country, the fission of the country between the Islamic elements, the Muslim elements, and the Hindu elements, and it was also a multiracial society. So they said, in essence, we will resolve not to go to war with each other on any disputes. We will cooperate 
on matters where it makes sense to both sides. We will not intervene in other people's affairs. Um, and we would recognize the, e each other as equal status to ourselves and to be treated with respect. The five principles of peaceful coexistence. They signed the agreement in 1954. I can tell you 50 years later, 2004, they celebrated 50 years of peace in spite of the frontier dispute. This time it was the Indian president, Narayanan, uh, it was Wen Jiabao, the Chinese um, head, of, head of government, and um, Butrus Butrus Ghali, perhaps the most thoughtful uh, of the recent secretary generals in terms of United Nations reform, meeting together and celebrating 50 years of peace with countries with diametrically different political systems, political ideologies, and even legal traditions. Uh, India is perhaps the most successful of the countries that adopted the Westminster-style constitutional system, totally different from the Chinese system of the time, but you can work together. Well, uh, this would have been an interesting footnote to world history, except changes were occurring within the then Soviet Union during the, uh, still the height of the Cold War years. And uh, Mr. Khrushchev uh, had replaced Stalin uh, after Stalin's death, and uh, he inaugurated the concept of peaceful coexistence as a guide to international relations during the Cold War era, and also as a guide to relations between the two big blocks, the Western bloc and the uh, Soviet bloc in the era bipolarity, which essentially governed international relations. Mr. Khrushchev said, we will make peaceful coexistence the keynote, the leitmotif of Soviet foreign policy and Soviet bloc foreign policy. He did drop a footnote to Lenin and suggest that Lenin had uh, devised the concept of peaceful coexistence. Um, it may or may not be so it's not impossible that Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai had read Lenin and uh, found the phrase, but the concept was one that he raised. And uh, the attractiveness from the Soviet viewpoint was that instead of the problems, the legal problems that lead to cont controversial and often conflicting interpretations of Chapter 7 of the Charter, you had fairly simple principles, ground, ground rules if you wish. You don't go to war to solve disputes. You cooperate, at least you prepared to cooperate in discussing issues that may be of common concern. And you recognize essentially the obligation not to interfere in the internal affairs of other countries. For people who find, as they say, chapter seven of the charter difficult to understand without a lawyer at their elbow, it makes a good deal of sense and it's very clear. The Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc immediately pressed the United Nations to take up the concept of peaceful coexistence as a new basis for international law in the Cold War era. Uh, there was a proposal that the General Assembly take it up as a prime uh, urgent uh, subject for study, that the Sixth Legal Committee um, should take it up. The Sixth Committee 
said, uh, in essence, by consensus, it's too dangerous, it's too highly political, and it will lead to name-calling ideological debates where you don't get anywhere. Then the suggestion was, what about the International Law Commission? But the International Law Commission had ended that early phase when it was a small group of uh, key international lawyers, legal theorists, legal philosophers, if you wish. It was getting down to bread and butter issues of international law, um, treaties, general code of rules on treaties, diplomatic immunities, privileged immunities in contemporary era, and the same reaction was there in the International Law Commission. No, it's too political, it would distract us from other work, and it would be non-productive. So, who can take it up? Well, one thought of the Institut de Droit International, the oldest and, I guess, most authoritative academy of jurists, uh, Geneva-based, good subject for it. But you got the same, same attitude. The Institut was a small body then, only 60 members, perhaps. They were all scholars, and they said, look, we're getting into dangerous political issues. We won't touch it. And this is where you got the outside body, the International Law Association, the London-based body. Uh, suddenly, uh, Mr. Khrushchev had opened up the Soviet Union to outside world. Uh, for the first time, Russians were attending international meetings, legal meetings, scientific meetings. They were allowed to go abroad, and they were encouraging foreign people to, non-Russian people, to come in. And the International Law Association decided to accept this as a subject for its agenda and a prime subject and uh, made the decision in 1956. It was interesting because you got a um, dédoublement, a duplication of Soviet and Soviet bloc membership from the delegates to the UN General Assembly suddenly came to meetings of the International Law Association. The top Russians, the top Poles, the top East Bloc people, and here, is, here an issue was launched for debate and discussion. Um, it was not everybody who was enthusiastic about this. In uh, very many Western foreign ministries, it was suggested that uh, this was a Russian ploy to, to diminish classical international law and diminish the role of the United Nations Charter by getting into ideological issues, that it would end up in name-calling debates. And so, within the International Law Association, there was a, a division of opinion. The Soviet Union pressed a Soviet bloc for a codification of the legal principles of peaceful coexistence. Uh, Western delegates said no, uh, that uh, would challenge international law, the charter, we don't want to do this. So you got a debate, a, a division of opinion intellectually. Uh, the Western position as it emerged was that one should study problems and see if you could apply these principles of peaceful coexistence to their solution. It was a debate that went on from uh, six, seven years within the International Law Association. It spilled over into the General Assembly, and eventually you got a decision by the General Assembly 
to create a special committee to study in 1963, Resolution 2625, uh, 25, October 1963, to study uh, the, um, the juridical principles of peaceful coexistence. The end result was Resolution 2625, adopted in 1970, but the decision to set up the committee was made in 1963. Uh, there is a background to what happened within the, uh, the, you might say, the world community, the organized world community, the decision to do two things, to accept the Soviet principle of codifying abstract principles. That's a good civil law approach. Um, we would say, uh, those of us who are Canadian, this is the Cartesian approach to law. You start with your a priori principles and you apply a logical deduction to those principles as opposed to a common law method where you start with the problem areas and the problem solutions and you induce the general propositions from the solutions you arrive at. You got the two approaches melded. And I think one of the interesting keys to the success of this came from a projection of the approach that I've already referred to the political approach within Russia to send their best people abroad and um, to meet foreign people in their own disciplines. There was something called the International Geophysical Year in the late 1950s, 1957. Uh, the first time Russian delegates appeared, scientists, and they met American scientists. And they found, as often happens with professional people, highly trained professional specialist people, that they have rather similar temperaments, rather similar approaches to, to finding solutions and common concerns. And one of the things that occurred was that Russian scientists said, we are worried that Antarctica, which is a pristine area, we see this talk about dumping radioactive uh, wastes, nuclear wastes, into the ice in on Antarctica. This is stupid because the, the, the ice is not permanently frozen for all time. Uh, and American scientists said, we have the same fear and we're worried about it. And so the solution that they seemed to arrive at simultaneously was, why don't you speak to your leaders and we'll speak to ours? So American scientists spoke to President Eisenhower's advisors and ultimately to President Eisenhower. Russians spoke to uh, uh, Mr. Khrushchev and his advisors. And in the end, you had the Antarctic Treaty of 1959 which without tackling the issue of who has sovereignty, you know many countries claim sovereignty based on very obscure historical connections with Antarctica, but it's permanently denuclearized Antarctica and permanently banned the dumping of waste materials in Antarctica. It was such an obviously sensible situation. You got a treaty and you got it ratified and you got it uh, adopted within the last year of the Eisenhower administration and certainly within uh, Mr. Khrushchev's term of office. So here is a problem-oriented approach 
between countries with two radically different political ideological systems, uh, countries that are opposed to each other in the Cold War, but they here's a common problem and we can reach a common solution. So it provided this twin approach, the justification of the twin approach. Let's get a code of abstract principles, and this is the United Nations Commission, uh, not in peaceful coexistence, in deference to Western uh, susceptibilities about that title as a, perhaps of Russian origin, a committee on friendly relations and cooperation among states in accordance with the United Nations Charter. If Paris is worth a mass, isn't it to get a viable committee worth a slight change in the name, even if it's a very wordy name like friendly relations and cooperation among states. But the problem-oriented approach is launched. And one of the first fruits of this uh, problem-oriented approach, you've seen it done with Antarctica, was with nuclear, nuclear test uh, experiments, the fallout. Um, Western scientists were saying, look, we're finding uh, that children in the west coast of the United States and Canada are perhaps consuming radioactive milk because the fallout from uh, Russian tests and Chinese tests uh, travels with the movement from west to east and the geostrophic currents in the air. It's, um, you're getting radioactive materials dumped on grasslands, on dairy farms in uh, western United States, and Russian scientists are saying we're having the same problem from our own tests. So why can't we get a solution, uh, in effect, limiting nuclear tests? This is the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty of 1963. It was negotiated essentially between the United States and the Soviet Union, but supporting countries in each alliance supported it. It was one of the great acts, the last acts of President Kennedy, the Moscow Test Ban Treaty of uh, August 1963. It's a success, and if you proceed on that basis, why not continue in other areas? Well, it's one a, a step and a jump, perhaps only, to treaties, um, treaties limiting nuclear armaments. Why not? And if you want to project ahead, SALT-1 and the ABM Treaty, um, the 1971 uh, achievements, why not? So. Antarctica, what about the moon? What about the planets? Somebody will get the idea of putting uh, nuclear weapons and projectiles on the moon. This would be crazy. Um, and it's, it's not difficult to find the Moon Treaty of 1968 as a logical follow-up to the uh, to the uh, Moscow Test Ban Treaty, you get a whole series of problem-oriented exercises, the product of summit diplomacy, admittedly, the style leadership usually coming from the each bloc leader, the United States and the Soviet Union itself, but other countries coming in. It's a period of enormous activity, a decade or so, and it all comes together. Um, 
the United Nations uh, Committee, the General Assembly Committee on Friendly Relations, seven years of work and labor, and they produce a statement of the principles of friendly relations, which are basically the coexistence principles. They are not a challenge to the United Nations Charter. They present in fairly simple, clear-cut form the essence of Chapter 7, Chapter 6, and Chapter 7 of the Charter. But at the same time, you get this highly empirical, problem-oriented uh, series of treaties uh, between essentially the two blocks, but they're expanded and become universal treaties. The two go together. Uh, it is the step from the Cold War through peaceful coexistence, friendly relations on to detente, and ultimately, I suppose, the end of the uh, Cold War itself. I would even add in the present period um, in the 21st century of the concern about international terrorism that the first of the viable contemporary international treaties on international terrorism were reached by the same route. Um, to give it credit, the Institute de International, rather than the International Law Association, approached this first. Um, they finally took up the issue. Um, at that period, aircraft on civil passenger flights from uh, New York to Havana, sometimes on flights from uh, Prague to Vienna, were being forcibly diverted from their original uh, traffic plan to other places taken over by people, sometimes who wanted asylum abroad, sometimes crazy people. But if you follow the th attitude through, every head of state is very well aware that he or she travels by air. Uh, what is a problem for Americans is also a problem for Russians or Canadians or Poles or others. Uh, the Institut de Droit International drafted a code of principles on control of international terrorism through aircraft. And it worked very closely with the International Civil Aviation Organization, the United Nations um, Agency. And uh, the principles are very clear. We treat a uh, an illegal diversion by armed force of aircraft, a civil aircraft from its uh, flight plan, we treat that as a threat to all of us. We undertake if somebody who has diverted a, a, uh, an aircraft in flight uh, from its original course, if they land in our territory, we will immediately restore the passengers and crew of the aircraft to their liberty. We will arrange for their aircraft to be returned to them, and we will apprehend the uh, delinquent uh, offenders. Uh, we won't treat them as heroes, and we will apply. And this was a very judicious principle, the principle out dedera, uh, out judicara. We will either undertake ourselves to prosecute the offenders under our own law, we will pass special statutes to that effect, or we will, we will surrender uh, the delinquents to judgment uh, in the courts of 
countries uh, whose aircraft they've d diverted or whose passengers they've interfered with. Uh, that was adopted by the Institut de Droit International by a body that had at that stage substantial representation from East and West and also from Islamic countries. It was adopted without dissent and it gave rise to the uh, Montreal and Hague conventions on uh, aerial piracy so that even in this period, the 1960s and 70s, the first big steps in terrorism after the uh, high-flown, poetic, but totally ineffective 1937 Treaty on Terrorism, the League of Nations Treaty, this was an example of a concrete measure of breakthrough. Now, the essence of all parallels historically is examining the conditions under which peaceful coexistence moved from being another, uh, another injection, uh, another political objection into uh, a charged ideological debate of the Cold War period, moved from there to being a common sense recognition that most states, perhaps all states, share perhaps 90% of problems in common with their neighbors, uh, that it is almost impossible to limit problems to a dimension with any one state, that you have to recognize the trans-frontier aspects of problems, and you need common international regulation. So do it peacefully, don't go to war, don't take unilateral action. Uh, these principles are clear enough in itself, and I suppose this is the this is the most substantial vindication of the peaceful coexistence debate. It brought a pause to the most extreme forms of attack that one saw on the United Nations General Assembly in the 50s and when the Cold War was at its height. It brought a pause to those. It brought a tradition of cooperation and it was viable. There were negative aspects to peaceful coexistence, friendly relations. It was posited upon agreement, fundamental understandings anyway, between the two blocs and their leaders. It in a sense recognized and legitimated a bipolar world community, which is not exactly the same as one world, or one world community. Did it have a Metternichian flavor, the recognition and acceptance de facto of the political status quo. Well, the political status quo within the United Nations and uh, from its foundation was the, uh, in essence, a reflection of the balance of power in the world community at war's end in 1945. The Big Five and the Security Council reflected the big five powers of that period. But um, with the practice within the United Nations under uh, peaceful coexistence, friendly relations, are you recognizing uh, the division of the world as a permanent condition? Do you sanctify, for example, the Alta Accords uh, well beyond 
their wartime purpose, which was to prevent the wartime allies breaking up and fighting each other before the war was over or immediately afterwards, did it in effect gel the Iron Curtain, the division, the Iron Curtain division across Europe? Did it, did it do as some of the original critics of the Soviet campaign said? Was, was it really an attempt to legitimate for all time the frontiers, not merely the frontiers of 1945, but the Alta-style division in Europe? And uh, the answer to that has to be, it certainly immediately, it did have that effect. Uh, the spring of 1968 in Prague, the uh, I suppose the interventions, one might say, in Latin America, which traditionally has uh, been viewed as a sphere of influence, or was viewed historically as a sphere of influence by, uh, by major Western powers, the notion that Eastern Europe was a sphere of influence that had remained untouched, should remain untouched. I think this element was there, and I think this is one of the reasons why uh, the concept disappeared. The winds of change, the new thinking in the Soviet Union itself, uh, the Gorbachev reforms, which incidentally were very much assisted by, we've spoken of the uh, jurists on each side, um, uh, Gregory Tunkin, who was the leading uh, Soviet jurist and Khrushchev's legal advisor, uh, was also somebody who contributed a great deal to Gorbachev's thinking, the new wave thinking, the perestroika in internal society, but also in international relations. So I think by the, um, certainly by the time uh, Gorbachev's departure, uh, the idea was considered passé and uh, it served its historical purpose. Um, at the opening of the 21st century, though, um, the issue arises again. It's not so much a political ideological conflict. Uh, after all, it's been pointed out that uh, Marxist-Leninism, uh, rooted in uh, European philosophical types of reasoning, that the same, you might say, universe of discourse is there if you take away the ideological content. How do you handle problems with colliding civilizations? Um, the aerial piracy treaties that I commended were able, the treaties were able to be approached, uh, discussed, debated, and agreed on because, of course, the heads of state uh, concerned all recognize the vital character of international air communication to their own functioning, both their personal safety and traveling in aircraft, but also the functioning of their civil societies. It's not necessarily true that you would get a universality of uh, approval of those treaties under positions where you move into a new dimension, the conflict of the cultures, not the legal cultures, which essentially reflect a legal elite in all countries, but um, the cultures proper. I think this is one of the big challenges to 
international lawyers and to bodies uh, like the um, International Law Commission, the Institut de Droit International, uh, the International Law Association, I think they have to reach out and make sure that the institutions are fully representative of all cultures and not simply legal cultures in the classical sense, that they have to examine the extent to which there is compatibility between the cultures in terms of legal programs that are being brought out. One of the uh, great uh, great uh, legal theorists of the immediate post-war period, Philman Northrop, wrote a book that was a um, bestseller as well as a philosopher's text, The Meeting of the East and West, and he raised this issue, um, isn't there something intrinsic in its culture in the approach to problems and the approach to reasoning. He raised the philosophical issue. For example, uh, is Beethoven's symphony a necessary a precondition to that is a grounding in Western culture? Uh, well, you would say to that, but some of the best performers of uh, Beethoven are, I can think of several by name, Japanese. Uh, Japanese uh, directors, Japanese program directors. I simply say that the new focus in international law today is the impact of multiculturalism on international law. The test being applied is the representativeness of existing legal institutions, the international court, uh, the specialized agencies, even the international secretariats of the new cultures, uh, is the, for example, a sufficient representation and access to Islamic cultures? That's a question. And if you do get into these issues, will you find a substantially different approach to definition of a problem and definition then of the appropriate means of solution? Um, at this stage, um, we would say optimistically, we think all problems, all problems, the problem of the greening of the uh, world community is a problem common to all systems, the acceptance of it. But on the other hand, countries with advanced industrial development have already achieved their status as post-industrial societies. Uh, you speak to developing countries that haven't yet achieved this. Uh, does this warrant a lesser standard of performance in meeting green objectives or a, a lowering of green objectives in their case and for their benefit? Uh, so you're getting into very difficult practical problems of negotiation. I welcome the new writing that's being developed here. The new, there's a new book produced by a Chinese uh, uh, scholar and uh, one of my Canadian fathers, Sin Hui and uh, Jacques-Yves Morin, Multiculturalism and uh, International Law. So some of these problems will be examined from the theoretical viewpoint. They'll be examined also in uh, terms of developing a methodology for problem solving, for definition of the agenda, 
problems, these are matters we can solve, these are matters that should be priorities in the agendas, these are matters we sensibly leave to one side, or if we say they're high priorities, we may have to accept double standards. Uh, so there's the challenge. The fascination of the uh, revival by the uh, Indian head of government, the Chinese head of government, and with Boutras Gavi present of the peaceful coexistence debate is that at least there is another way. And in terms of the organized international legal community, the precedent is worth study. And uh, the lessons, I think, are very clear. You can approach as long as you uh, emphasize common problems, establishing the common necessities present, as you postulate, for all systems and going about solutions accordingly. So we will leave that to uh, the agenda of the, uh, for, the, for the various bodies. The Institut Adouin International is the non-governmental uh, non agency, the International Law Association. There are advantages in going, by the way, to the private associations. If the UN itself gets blocked, um, take it up. Why shouldn't medical doctors take these issues up? That was the lesson of the international geophysical year and the Antarctic Treaty is a solution for it. Thank you very much.